Well, we got plenty of feedback from last week's episode. And for a change, it wasn't because of the performance of the two clowns who host this thing. It was all about the Ice Dogs debacle in St. Catharines. We will get to the email inbox. And remember, you can email this podcast anytime yourself. OHLpodcast at rogers.com. My name is Mike Farwell. Find me on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. Obviously, Dan, the story, the main story to talk about is the OHL championship, with the which the Peterborough Peets now lead two games to one following a 6-5 overtime win on home ice in game number three. Not the prettiest of games overall, <laughs> but I'll tell you what I see as the good. Uh, the good is there is some bite in this series. The teams seem to have a general dislike for each other. Uh, the bad, maybe the goaltending in game number three and Dale Hunter's iPad skills as he tried to demonstrate <laughs> behind the bench. But he's into it too. You don't often see the head coach of the London Knights get emotional or involved in any way besides just standing behind the bench with his hands in his pockets. But what's your take on where we're at? Well, yeah, what's that saying? Like, it was not a Picasso uh, in game three. Uh, it's more like my uh, art skills from grade two. But, uh, yeah, it, it's still entertaining. And you have a 6-5 game in an OHL championship series. It's an entertaining game. Yeah, there was uh, a few players probably would like to have a few moments in this game back, most notably the goaltenders. But, I mean, they've been excellent in the playoffs. So we'll give them this one. Um and yeah, the the Dale Hunter thing. I uh, I I vaguely recall the OHL used to have a rule that was an automatic ejection if the coach used the iPad to uh, to get at the ref. But uh, maybe that has changed, or maybe it's just a Dale Hunter thing. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, all around. I mean, that could have been it could have been a better played game, but it was definitely entertaining for those who were there. Don Cameron would have used his signature phrase. They tried to paint the masterpiece when all they needed was a little whitewash for the barn. Uh, but good point on the Dale Hunter aspect of this, because something else that was a little bit uncharacteristic, I would say, is the bench minor for unsportsmanlike conduct assessed to the London Knights in game number three. Again, this comes back to the bite that I have seen in this series to date. And for teams that obviously from opposite conferences don't see one another an awful lot. Maybe they're thinking back to 2006 when the Pete swept the Knights in the OHL championship and, and went on to the Memorial cup. I'm not sure, but there is definitely some bad blood between these two teams, which makes for really entertaining hockey. I loved the first period of game number three. I didn't love the second period at all. It was just uncharacteristic of the way both of these teams have really played in the playoffs so far. Well, if you didn't like it, I'm pretty sure Rob Wilson and Dale Hunter didn't didn't much either. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, the, it got off to a bit of a bang. You're right. There was uh, London on the board quickly, taking the crowd out of it. You, you saw some things that, that pointed towards it being a, a good game. But yeah, it got a little sloppy there for sure. And, uh, and just to your point about the 2006 Peterborough-London series, I would not put it past Dale Hunter and the Knights at all to still remember that and, and be looking for revenge because if there's one thing that Dale Hunter does really well with motivating his troops. It's creating, creating narratives that appeal to his team about the being the underdog or the other team being the enemy or some sort of revenge narrative. So really, it really plays that psychological game. Well, so I know you said it in jest, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of lingering uh, hatred from 2006. Well, 
I don't know if we got into it in previous episodes. Forgive me if we did. But to your point about being the underdog, the London versus the world card was played by the Knights stenographer who happens to kind of call him for the London Free Press. It was, I mean, come on. The, the team that has been the most decorated in terms of division banners and OHL titles over the past two decades, it's not them against anybody. It's everybody against them or something like that. But I thought the narrative was perhaps played a little prematurely and very much unnecessarily, at least in my humble opinion. Yeah, they do that well, though, right? They do that well. They uh, they come up with something to to motivate the troops, and it seems to work because – Oftentimes these seems these things seem like quite the stretch, if you ask me. Uh London, I don't think the London Knights can ever play the underdog card, but uh I get why they try and and seems to work for them. Well, I'm continuing my fine form from the conference finals with predictions where I went 0 for 2. And my at least games prediction is blown out of the water already. I took London in five just because of the way they were humming along in these playoffs. But give the Peets credit too because they did something that no other team has yet been able to do in these playoffs, and that's beat the London Knights on home ice. They were 9-0 and until the Peets got home ice advantage back by winning game two at Budweiser Gardens. Yeah, well, I mean, touching on the predictions thing, Mike, I, I am to predictions as Dale Hunter is to the iPad, so I'm not going to say much about, about where this is going. But yeah, I think I, with Peterborough, they have that veteran team, right? They're a little bit older than London, and I think this is where it shows up when you get deep into the playoffs. These guys aren't fatigued. They aren't starting to labor. They've, they, they've been to the war before, and this is why you paid for those guys. This is why you built the team you did. And getting a, London, a win in that London barn is not easy, and, that, and that's, that's where these players, these veteran players have paid off. Tucker Robertson, the game winner, and a beauty in game number two, and then gets the OT winner in game number three. So emerging as an early hero in this series, certainly for the Peterborough Peets. Another player that you wanted to identify, or maybe not so much the player, but the action, and Owen Beck was assessed a five-minute major for a check to the head. No suspension, no discipline handed down by the league, which you get the exact response you would think from both coaching staffs. Rob Wilson and Peterborough says the league saw it exactly the way we saw it. It was a, a good, hard, clean body check, but they're always cautious of things when they get up near the head. Uh, the London Knights TV crew had described it as an elbow to the head. Clearly the league didn't see it that way. And Dale Hunter was very nonchalant and matter of fact about the whole thing. He says the league looks at these things. They do their job. We're just going to go back and play some hockey, that kind of idea. So he didn't give it much additional thought. And fortunately, uh, there was no serious injury on the play. But I think the big thing here is we've got a five-minute major for checking to the head, still being assessed when we're down to just two teams left in the Ontario Hockey League. Yeah, you know, Mike, like uh, instantly I didn't, I didn't love the call. And I know there's pressure on these referees to make those calls and the, to err on the side of of the severe penalty when you see a head check and I, I just didn't see it. I know, I know that there was some contact to the head, obviously there, the player was, was done for a bit there, had to leave the game for a bit. So there was some fear about a head injury and there was some contact, but it looked to me an awful lot, just like finishing a check, the arm. I didn't see the elbow at all that the London TV crew is describing. The elbow did not come up. The, the arm came, the, the upper arm led into the player there. It looked like a fairly standard hit, finishing of the hit. Um, 
and Owen Beck is, I mean, not not a noted dirty player. There was a, a hit he had earlier in the year that I thought was was suspendable, where he came up on a player. Uh, that one I did not think was suspendable at all. So, so I think the league got it right. But the problem I have is what you just identified is that's a fairly key player for the Peterborough Peets that you're taking out of the lineup for the game on a very borderline call. So which side do you err on? Because it, you want to protect the players for sure. But if you start calling hits like that majors and taking key players out of the game in a championship series, you're coming awfully close to influencing the outcome of a series based on a fairly borderline call. So I, I don't know what the answer is, Mike. I just I just say in this instance, I did not love the major call there. I thought it was a fairly standard hit. You want to give them two for maybe a bit of contact to the head, sure. But uh, but uh, I, I didn't love the major. I, I think the answer here, unfortunately, Dan, is the one that we always find ourselves searching for in situations like this. And that is, do you err on the side of caution and apply accountability to the player who delivered the hit, right? So the answer to it is, well, then just don't hit guys like that. But then the other side of that argument is, do you want that physical element taken out of the game? Do you want a guy who's got a player lined up and is able to lay a big, strong body check to back off of that? Is that the direction we want to see the game going? And of course, we could make the further argument, which I don't put a lot of weight into, but we could make it. If you've got a guy lined up and you're second guessing yourself, and then you kind of half hit the player, it could be even more dangerous than if you had carried through with the original intention. So I think that's where we're left in all of this, unfortunately. Yeah, and, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on you. see Sean Reed and uh, Joe Monette there having to make the call on the spot and veteran officials who have uh, a lot of experience doing this. So it, it's a fine line they're having to walk there. And I think you're having to weigh a whole bunch of factors and each hit, each hit it should be taken on a case-by-case basis and you just have to weigh in a bunch of factors like you said did did the person kind of ease up at the end did any part of the body come up into the head explode into head those types of things i saw none of that there i actually saw one back almost turning away from the hit as he laid it thinking he had to get back into position was kind of just i'm going to finish this check and and face the play again see where i'm going so i think he was as confused probably as anyone to to be thrown out of that game um, maybe it looked on replay, maybe there was a little bit of head contact and and he could understand a penalty, but it, it certainly, to me, there you go down the criteria and I just didn't see enough there to throw a player out of the game in that circumstance. Fortunately for the Peterborough Peets, they had Michael Simpson there for them. He was stellar in game number two. The reason that the Peets were able to come from behind and knock off the Knights coming back in the third period, no less, against this team that has been just terrific when leading in any game in these playoffs and not only did the Peets hand the Knights their first home loss of these playoffs but with the win in game number three the London Knights are now trailing a playoff series for the first time this season yeah and I think I think another uh point I want to throw into that mix too is Peter Peets a little bit banged up too missing a couple bodies that are have been pretty good for them so they're they're using that depth that they built they're using the same model and having their their defense core frankly plays the same way no matter who's on the ice and that that really comes in handy when you're down a couple bodies like they are so they're they're doing some impressive things i think we talked about the predictions mike and coming to the series it was really tough to call because we said we didn't want to get burned again by london they've been just styming everyone so let's go there but on the other side peterborough was doing the same thing peterborough was a bit of a juggernaut plowing through some pretty big teams there so who's the hot hand that kind of both are. And I think this could go either way. It was a coin flip and 
and I know I'm going to get it wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I I know that we've mentioned this before, but perhaps it bears repeating. I was speaking with Terry Doyle over the past week. Terry's the host of OHO Radio, calls games for the Sarnia Sting right now. So just got a good close look at the London Knights in that Western Conference final and. Terry began his career actually up in Peterborough of all places. But when he and I were talking about this OHL final, I suggested to him much like you and I have talked about Dan. And I know this comes as cold comfort to Kitchener Rangers fans, but the Pete's are kind of the Kitchener Rangers of the East, if you will. And where everybody was still waiting for the Rangers to flip the switch that they never found. The Pete's found it maybe towards the end of the season, certainly in the playoffs and now leading the mighty, mighty London Knights in the OHL final. Yeah, and that analogy we've used a few times, I think it's quite valid. However, a little caveat there that the down season for the Peterborough Pete still saw them finish fourth in the conference. They still got home ice advantage. And, and I think if we saw any kind of a precursor to this, what's happening right now was that Sudbury series because you and I both expected a war, a seven-game war there, uh, potentially going Sudbury's favor just based on everything down the stretch. And Peterborough just kind of wiped the map with them. And that should have been a sign to say, okay, this – this is a different gear that Pete's have found in the playoffs. This is kind of what we were expecting. So I don't think anyone should be terribly shocked. All right. Well, if uh, Terry Doyle agrees with our analogy that the Pete's are the Kitchener Rangers of the East, I don't know if that makes us three amigos, three stooges, take your pick. We can be the musketeers. We can be whatever you want to be. Uh, before we move on, just I, I wanted to touch on this just a little bit further. And I, I think, I think I'm maybe falling victim to the old, uh, Twitter verse and you know everybody goes on there to put forward all manner of outrageous ideas I wouldn't call this one entirely outrageous but I think the conversation is largely confined to the social media space but the argument has been made that the OHL or the league title add the dub or the Q into this is a more coveted prize than the Memorial Cup championship I'll concede the argument and and certainly think there are some points you could make in that direction. But overall, I, I, I'm going to be pretty firm in my opposition to said argument. I don't know why winning the national junior hockey title would be less than anything else along the way. Thoughts? I, I, I'll say this. I get the sentiment in the sense that the Memorial Cup being a short tournament, quick round robin winner, one game winner, one game elimination once you get into that round can be seen as a little bit more of a dice roll. It, it it doesn't, that format doesn't necessarily say the best team won all the time. Could be the most rested team at advantage. The team with the best schedule had an advantage in that short tournament. So I think the sentiment is that when you play four series, seven, best of seven series is in your league, it's going to be pretty clear who the best team was. The best, they, everyone had the same circumstances to begin with. One team emerged at the end. I think sometimes people feel with that short Memorial Cup tournament that the circumstances aren't, aren't always the same for everyone. And maybe a team ran out of gas. Maybe something happened in one of those one-off games that didn't they didn't have their best for one game, and that was it for them. So I get that sentiment. But like you said, Mike, it's the – tournament of champions if you will and when you win the tournament tournament of champions you're playing only teams that emerge from their league so it's kind of hard to diminish that yeah i think you touch on the key points in this argument if you can call it an argument it's been an interesting discussion anyway that i've been following a little bit over the past week or so and the other thing 
that I will add to it is I, I think that the Memorial Cup is dismissed a little bit more easily by some fans because there's a host team attached to it, right? And has been since the early 1980s, early to mid 80s. So we're coming up on 40 years of doing the tournament this way. And of course the host team gets the automatic berth. And what we just saw last year with St. John is that they get bounced in the first round. Then they're a well-rested team. They come back, they win the championship. The Windsor Spitfires did the same thing back in 2017, 2017, when they did it. So I, I get that argument, but if you look at the big picture, that has only happened seven times in the near 40-year history of doing the Memorial Cup this way. So I get that it might be a little bit annoying, but it doesn't happen with nearly enough frequency to make it an argument as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but it's an excellent point because that is a a point that sours some people, that if the host team can – if any team can back their way in without really deserving it and still win – all those types of excuses are going to come up that, well, they didn't have to play the grind. They didn't, uh, you know, have to go to war for an extra couple of series like we did. So it just leaves a bit of a sour taste in people's mouths when a team that didn't really earn their way in gets in. So it's always nice. That's why it's, it's important for these leagues to pick a host that's actually competitive because you often get a host that doesn't back in, or at least, at least made to the, the league final series before losing. So they kind of earned their way in that becomes important because like you said, you don't want to see a team eliminated in the first round and then get their crack at the big trophy at the end. Absolutely true. And I think in that case, your argument is more with the Memorial Cup tournament slash format than it is with the league championship versus the Memorial Cup tournament. And I think the Peterborough Pete's are a great example of this. We mentioned it last week on the podcast, nine, count them, nine OHL titles, one Memorial Cup. Those other eight times that they were in the Memorial Cup tournament. Do you think they look back on that and say, ah, yeah, but we won the league title. Not a chance in hell. They're looking back and saying, ding, dang it. We lost the Memorial Cup that year. That's the way it would be viewed. They might get some consolation from having won the league title on the way there, but they're looking at as a lost Memorial Cup as opposed to a one league championship. And for me, that's all the argument you need. Yeah, it is a bit bittersweet if you think about it. eh? You go through all those battles to win your league a glorious year for you uh but you end on a losing note so it's just one more chance to end on a losing note and i mean just put in perspective for you as a leaf fan mike imagine your leafs finally win a stanley cup but then they had to play something after that and lost it just leave a little bit of a, a bitter taste in your mouth but it is a it is a heck of a thing to win it you just couldn't resist throwing in a leaf stick <laughs> in this podcast could you you couldn't resist eh well you know we're talking fiction when i said what if the leafs win the cup so i was just a completely fantasy but The wound is still fresh, Dansky. The (laughs) wound is still fresh. I don't even know what to do with that team anymore. (laughs) All right. I know what to do on this episode of the OHL podcast. We've still got performers of the week coming your way, and we're going deep, and I do mean deep, into the email inbox bag because you had a lot to say following last week's episode and all the talk about the Niagara Ice Dogs debacle. Let's get into that email bag, Dan, and I'm going to start with our favorite Rhode Islander. Okay, he might be our only Rhode Islander, but Joe, always love getting your emails. 
Hi, Mike and Dan. I really enjoyed, by the way, email address ohlpodcast at rogers.com. Send us a note anytime. Joe writes, hi, Mike and Dan. I really enjoyed your lengthy discussion about the fiasco in St. Catharines. Kudos to Dan for the jab at Darren Dobler's teams for having fewer combined wins than trades made by the Ice Dogs this season. Way to bring the wit, Dansky. Way to bring the wit. Uh, Joe goes on to say the culture in St. Catharines clearly in need of a major overhaul. Having said that, it seems to me that much of the outrage against hockey culture appears to be nothing more than righteous indignation. The attendance at this year's World Junior Championship in the Maritimes indicates that many Canadians were perfectly willing to turn their heads at the horrendous actions of Hockey Canada in order to cheer on the boys wearing the beloved Maple Leaf. Blackhawk fans didn't boycott their team after the Kyle Beach scandal, and Capitals fans don't seem to have any qualms about Alexander Ovechkin's open support of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Perhaps the need to have a diversion like hockey that helps take our minds off our everyday lives trumps the will to have moral scruples. That from Joe in Westerly, Rhode Island. That's deep. That is deep. Well, first of all, thanks, Joe. I mean, that's a that's a that's an excellent uh, email. And I once again, I'm not sure I can take issue with anything Joe just said in there. I mean, he's not wrong on any of those counts. And and I always ask myself the question in these situations: Is are people hypocrites by still supporting? teams and players after these things happen or is it just a case of not knowing who to blame really not wanting to take it out on the new crop of hockey Canada players based on something the old crop did or or just blind support to a team like the Chicago Blackhawks regardless of what's happened in the front office and um but you're you're absolutely right Joe I think at the at the root of it uh I think people maybe just are able to flip that switch and and say that this is uh this is a distraction for me. It's something I enjoy. So I'm always going to be able to rationalize still following and still supporting, but it's, you're not wrong. I look at it this way, rightly or wrongly, and I'll take the criticism at farwell underscore OHL or in the email inbox at OHL podcast at rogers.com. But I agree with you, Dan, where Joe is right on the mark. I mean, he hits a home run with that email for sure. The way I view it, I'm not oblivious to the, horrendous year that hockey Canada has had the absolutely inexcusable, disgusting behavior that some players within hockey Canada have obviously exhibited and the culture that made that. Okay. Let's just be clear about that. Okay. It was the culture of this game that made stuff like that. Okay. At least in the minds of the players that were alleged to have perpetrated all of this awfulness, the way I sleep at night for lack of a better way to look at this is I am as much a fan of this game as I am a media member in the game. And it is my sincere hope that talking about the culture openly and honestly talking about how it needs to change. And at the same time, celebrating the good that does happen in the game begins to build that foundation of the good stories that we need as we work to change this culture. So Again, maybe that makes me somebody who turns his head, uh, you know, the other way when it comes to moral scruples. But that's how I view my place in the game today. And I hope I can can carry that on as I move forward in the game. Yeah, really well said, Mike. And I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind is that you and I are both around the game a lot at various levels. And we know there's tons of good out there. There's tons of great people trying to be 
the good part of the change that we want to see and, and and make things positive and and welcoming for everyone and all those things. But those stories seldom get told, right? Or they get ignored because they're not terribly sensational. They don't make headlines. They're not uh, controversial. So, so they get buried below the the leads, which which sometimes hopefully give people a bit of an outsized idea of how bad it is. I like to I, I have to tell myself that, Mike, because like you, I love the game and I want to I want to follow it. I want to support it. So I have to tell myself that these things just aren't as widespread and normal as we think, but you're right. There is a, there is a cultural problem. And I know I'm being a bit naive to, to suggest that, but for me, that's what it is too, Mike. I have to focus. You have to focus on the positives because they are there and the people are there and it's not a lost cause. Elam also sending an email to OHL podcast at rogers.com. Uh, hope you and Dan are doing well. Appreciated the episode you guys did about what's been going on in Niagara. My question for you guys is what are the chances that the Niagara Ice Dogs are relocated somewhere else because of what has gone on over the past two seasons there? Do you think relocation would help that franchise or are there problems just simply within the organization that need to be fixed? Hope you enjoy the finals. Cheers, Elam. Over to you, Dan. Well, my thought on that, Mike, as you know, is I I, I hate seeing the community punished for from clownery going on with the franchise. I think we 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 spoke about how well that community supported that team. They had a dreadful year, not a lot of reason to go down to that rink, and they were packing the rink at the end of the year. Clearly, there's an appetite. Clearly, the community wants to support it, and I I'd hate to see that ripped away from just because people in the front office can't get their stuff together, so to speak. So, I, I don't think relocation's an answer here, Elam. I would I would hate to see it relocated. I, I I think there's a recipe here to make it work. Obviously, if the community the community is behind it, the rink is gorgeous. Like we've stated, I don't think relocation's in the cards at all. I think it's just a case of let's figure this out in the front. Of, let's let's start making this functional. And the people that are dysfunctional, give your head a shake. Wait, either wake up or move on because I I don't think it's the community's fault. Nor do I think they should pay the price. I'm with you 100% on that, and I'm pretty sure we touched on this in last week's episode, although it may get lost in all of the drama that's going on and the sanctions that have been applied, etc. But bottom line, and as clearly as I can make this statement, the market's just too damn good to be relocated, to have the franchise moved from it. The arena's perfect, the fan base is passionate, and it's not St. Catherine's fault that they've got a bit of a messy ownership situation right now. Are there other markets that would be, I think, welcoming a team with open arms? Yeah, and we touched on that last week too. Cornwall's always in the mix. There's rumors that Belleville may be returning to the Ontario Hockey League circuit as the AHL's Senators perhaps move on. Chatham is rumored again, and so too is Brantford. It might be more than a temporary stay for the Bulldogs, for example, but the the mayor of Brantford has made no bones about the fact that he wants an OHL team back there allow the Alexanders from the early 1980s, whether it's the Bulldogs or not. But despite all of that, 100% with Dan, the market is just too good to take the team away from it. It it hits all of the, I think, the, the right notes for the league in terms of location, again, arena, the passionate fans, et cetera. So we just got to get that ownership thing sorted out. And speaking of that, just remembered, Bruce Garriock out of Ottawa uh, reporting this evening as we record this, Dan, that among the shortlisted bids for the Ottawa Senators, none other than Michael Andlauer 
I know you know him well because he is a partial owner of your favorite NHL team, but junior fans know him well because he is, in my mind, one of the model owners in the OHL also as he owns the Hamilton Bulldogs. So that's pretty interesting if Michael and Lauer were to be successful in landing the NHL's Ottawa Senators. Yeah, I saw that in the short list of the four uh, bids remaining, and I that's great. I mean, I'm uh, I'm not shocked to see his name on the list. Obviously, there'd be a few quirks to work out with his stake in the in the Montreal Canadiens, but uh, that I know he's never played Deadpool. But don't worry, Ottawa fans. I think I think he's equally as qualified to be the owner there. Uh, as excited as you were about Ryan Reynolds, but I think that's a really serious name in that hunt. So it's great to see them narrowing that field down. And if it's Mike Landlauer, you can definitely do worse in terms of having community champions that will fight for your franchise and your team. All right. One more from the email bag. This one from our buddy, Johnny 807. Uh, lots of good points. He writes to OHL podcast at rogers.com on the issues surrounding the Niagara ice dogs. I'm surprised more people aren't talking about this dumpster fire of a team, which I hate saying as it does a disservice to the fans of the team, as well as to the players not caught up in this mess, but I can't help but say that because it almost seems this OHL team was being run no better than a beer league team in rural Northwestern Ontario. Remember, he's Johnny 807 for a reason. That's a Northwestern Ontario area code. One question nobody has asked, Johnny says, is the role of Wayne Gretzky in all of this. Recall last July, Gretzky was announced as a minority owner of the Ice Dogs after Dodobler purchased the team from the Burks. Surely the great one himself had to know something about the shenanigans going on there. Is he even still a minority owner after the investigation findings? Dan, over to you. Well, I think we all know how much Wayne Gretzky likes gambling. So maybe that's just what he was doing when he got on board with, with Darren Dodobler. So I I don't know what his involvement still is, other than to say that any involvement he had, I'm sure, was on a figurehead basis. I don't think he's very involved in the day-to-day or has his eye too too closely on that ball. But uh, not not great optics for for the great one on this one, for sure. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on that. I, I'm not... I. I do believe he's got a small stake, like an actual financial investment in the team. But to say he has any, and I mean any idea of what's going on within the organization at any level, I I think would be uh, ill-conceived on our part to believe that. I'd make some joke about him not even knowing where St. Catharines is, but it's not all that far from Brantford where he grew up and he's a good Canadian boy at heart. So I won't go down that road, but... I don't think Wayne Gretzky has anything whatsoever to do with this team. Figurehead is the is the perfect word for it. And I mean, could he possibly come in as a white knight and try to save this thing? I don't think he's got any interest in that. The only the only interesting piece I might add to it is and look <laughs> to your gambling joke. Wayne Gretzky hasn't always made the best investments in his life, it <laughs> seems. But maybe it shows that ownership stakes in Ontario hockey league franchises remains viable. I mean, it might get you a slight ROI on that money. I don't know, but if you want to look at the glass half full, that could indicate that these franchises are not only worth something, but get you a little bit of return on what you put in. I think that's a certainty, Mike, if you do it well, if you do it right. And if you walk yourself into a situation like that one, where, Often the biggest issue for these franchises being viable is the building. 
that's not an issue there. Clearly the fan base isn't. So I think you're absolutely right, Mike. It's an opportunity. And, and when you start seeing names like that pop up, but let's, how about we do a little more due diligence on the vetting of these people, make sure we have someone that, that does have their eye on the ball and has done their background work to actually make it viable. Because to me, it's starting to look more like it's harder to screw this up than it is to make it work. So let's find the people that can, that can make it work. By the time you and I sit down again, Dan, we're going to have an OHL champion. We're going to start talking about the Memorial Cup. I think it just pops into my head that this is probably a good time to remind folks that we're going to keep up these episodes until the NHL draft and take a look at the players from the Ontario Hockey League that then become property of National Hockey League teams. And then we'll take a six-week break or so over the summer and get back for training camps in mid to late August as teams start getting back into the swing of a new OHL season. So just put that in there for a little bit of housekeeping as we now move into the part of each podcast where during the regular season, we had a prospect of the week, the players that we thought were performing well, who were going to be drafted or who could be drafted in this year's NHL draft, which is now just about a month away. Uh, we've transitioned that into performer of the week because, hey, the prospects don't get as much ice time when they are still in the playoffs. And of course, they get knocked off earlier and earlier. So performers of the week is where we're at. Who you got this week, Dan? Well, Mike, can I, I, ha- I have a, an idea that I might have your guy. So can I be a gentleman and let you go first? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's interesting because I, I thought I went completely... I think I thought I went completely off the board here. So we'll we're about to find out, but thank you for being a gentleman. I'll I'll tell you this. I feel a little bit bad, but Michael Simpson had a bit of a stinker of at least a second period in game three. And uh, until then, I kind of had him in my <laughs> in my running as the guy. I gave due consideration. I shouldn't take away your thunder. I'll just quickly just drop the name to Tucker Robertson for back-to-back game winners. But I'm gonna go with Sean Spearing as my performer of the week. Now I know Dan, you identified him a few weeks ago about the unsung hero kind of guy blocking shots, etc. I think you all know where I'm going with this. He blocked a shot with his face in game seven versus North Bay had the, his teammates held up his Jersey so he could be a part of the trophy championship celebration when they won the Eastern conference. And then he conducted a media interview via text because his jaw has been wired shut. He was able to mumble a word or two, and that's it. But the day after taking the puck to the face, he's back out for a skate with the team, and he was on the bench. Not used, but he was on the bench for game number three. That's enough to make a guy. Who who wouldn't play for a captain like that? Sean Spearing is my performer of the week. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love him and what he's brought to the Pete. So hopefully you can get back in that lineup uh, sooner and later. And and you, you already, you, you met, you name dropped the guy I had, of course, which is why I figured I'd, I'd let you go first. But uh, there were a few options, but one of these guys that's been lost in the mix a little bit amongst the big names, Othman and Beck playing for Peterborough is Tucker Robertson. And this week scoring a couple huge goals for Peterborough, obviously the overtime winner in game three, and then you had the dagger goal in London in game two, just one of those guys that can consistently pacing along around a point a game, making a lot of noise for those Peterborough Peets, but he's that, that secondary score. If you, if you want to call him that, he's almost primary scoring for Peterborough, but he's secondary scoring behind the big guns. That is what, what you need to win a championship. So, so Tucker Robertson's my guy though, if I can give a quick slight mention to an eliminated player, uh, 
who did play in this past week, but no longer is playing. That's Ty Nelson in North Bay, who signs with the Seattle Kraken, had a great playoffs with 25 points in 20 games from the point as a defenseman. So a minor, a minor shout out to Ty Nelson as well. As soon as I mentioned Tucker Robertson's name, I knew I should have like, leave it to me, right? All I do is talk. I got to learn when to shut up. So I'm sorry I stole a bit of that thunder. (laughs) No, all good. It just confirmed what I had feared. I I, I thought we might have the same guy, which is, which is why I wanted you to to have the honors there. I forget uh, real quick how we both took London in the final. How many games did you pick? I had him in six. So I'm still six. technically alive, but we all know how this ends. I'm <laughs> out. And so now it is already out. I had London in five. We'll see. Because when we talk next week, we're going to have an OHL champion to talk about and get you set for the Memorial Cup. Don't forget, we also do one of these episodes on Friday. It is a feature interview episode. And this week is a guy who just likes to win. An OHL championship with the Oshawa Generals in 1997. One year after that, he's off to UNB, where he wins the Canadian Men's University Hockey Championship. And three years after that, so three times in five years, this guy's a champ. The third of those titles coming in what they affectionately refer to as the U-Haul with the Quad City Mallards of the United Hockey League, the UHL. So I think that's enough. You want to figure out who that is. That will be our feature interview guest on Friday's episode of the OHL podcast. Well, you know, if you played in Quad City, there's going to be some stories you want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) And and boy, oh boy, the coaches this guy played for. Dave McQueen, Stan Butler. uh, 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 Oh, gosh. Why is it Bill Stewart's in there? And then why am I blanking? Why am I blanking on the UMB coach right now? Great guy out of the East Coast. Gardner McDougall. Gardner McDougall. I was thinking Garnet for some reason. Gardner McDougall. I mean, the list of coaches just goes on and on. He's got some uh, good ones in his uh, back pocket. I'm sure they taught him well along the way. So that's our feature episode on Friday. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Send us an email anytime. OHL podcast at Rogers.com. And hey, thanks for listening to the OHL podcast. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.